Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 17 and reading through verse 25. A very well-known portion of Scripture that we're going to look over this morning where it discusses, discusses both the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. This is a, probably one of the more recognizable portions of verses in the book of Galatians. There are some abstract areas in the book that many would say, I have no idea that that was in the Bible as we've looked at, such as that allegory of Agar and Sarah. Well, here it is a very recognizable portion of Scripture. I'm sure that most of you have read it, have heard sermons on it, and have equally considered uh, the weight of these verses as it pertains to what comes from the natural carnal flesh, equally what is given to us through the Spirit of God. With that said, I hope as we look at this portion of Scripture this morning, we wouldn't look at it with kind of a mundane, I've heard this before feel, right? But looking to it as even we heard the fourth psalm read to us aloud this morning in almost a call to worship I've read the fourth psalm multiple times. Psalms is one of my favorite books. It's what the early church read. But even as I heard it word this, read this morning, the Word of God always has power. When I heard the, that expression, when I call upon thee, he will hear. You see, the Word of God has power regardless how many times we've heard it, read it, or can even heard a sermon on it. We can always look to the Word of God and know that God can bless that portion of Scripture with power. So let us begin reading in verse 17 as we consider the, believ the believer's battle. If I don't get too tongue-tied this morning, the believer's battle. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In this portion of Scripture, Paul has begun to paint a picture for us as he has commanded the Galatian church and through them the believers in every age to walk in the liberty that we have in Christ, the freedom that Christ gives us. As we looked last week, we saw that we are freed in multiple different ways. 
We've been freed from the curse of the law that was against us. From hell itself we have been freed. We have been freed from the fear of death that is attached to that. And we've equally been freed from the bondage that the Old Testament had for the believers then, the Jewish nation that was there. We've been freed from that bondage of service into the glorious liberty that we have in Christ. And here he has commanded them to walk in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage, but to continue in Christ. Now, he gave this final exhortation as he was describing to them how they should not bite and devour one another, but that they should love one another and serve one another with the liberty they have in Christ. And he finished in verse 16 by saying, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He gives that final exhortation of how loving one another is accomplished because it's not necessarily something that will happen. You know, I can wake up one morning and be very loving to my wife and wake up the very next morning and not be very loving. It doesn't come naturally. And you would think with a beautiful, smart, nice, uh, successful lady like I got, it'd be easy to love her. Well, you know what? She's still a sinner. <laughs> I'm glad nobody amened that, but she is. She still has problems. And you know, as handsome of a man as I am and as funny and as dashing and as wonderful, she sometimes wakes up and it's hard to love me. And this is why he would tell them to walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's an active command to do. It's an active command to pursue. It's something that doesn't come natural in the sense of just autopilot. Well, here in verse 17, he paints a picture for us that kind of gives us the sum up of the battle that we experience as believers and why it is sometimes hard to do what we really want to do. And this does two things here. You'll notice that he says, For the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these things are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. Two things that we can gather from this as we see the believer's battle that we experience right now. One, before we really see what this battle is, one, this means that what we're doing is not just autopilot. We will never get to a point to where we have this perfectionist view of sanctification. There's never going to be a point in my life where I can stand up with my thumbs in my lapels and say, I've made it. I'm no longer a sinner in the practical sense. Now, I know in the legal sense I am in Christ and I am not a sinner, right? Before the throne of God, He sees me not as a sinner, but through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He is our advocate we have with the Father and made a propitiation for us on our behalf. Yet, yet, if any man says that he sins not, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. And that's not just with men, right? It's not just that women say, Amen, men are sinners. That's with everybody. Every person that is born into this world except for Jesus Christ Himself has been born a sinner. Not only are we born with this inherent nature to where we seek after what we should not seek after, but equally, it's not just I was born a sinner, but I come forth sinning. Now, my sinning doesn't make me a sinner. The fact that I'm a sinner makes me sin. <laughs> I do it, and daily I do it. 
it's, I'm never going to reach a point where I've said I've graduated and I no longer need that sustaining grace of God that is found in Christ and communicated to us in an experiential sense through the preaching of the Word. One reason I daily try to pray and study my Word, the Word of God, my Bible, the reason I come every single week to the communion of the saints, to where we come together in a congregation and desire to worship God, the reason I do this is because I understand I need that sustaining grace to make it to the next day and to the next day. From week to week to week, I need Jesus Christ. Because if I don't desire Him and seek Him as I should, that part of me that lusts against the Spirit is going to take hold of me and make my life a lot worse than it should. We were discussing this morning before services the importance of the church in a believer's life. It's, should be no mis, it should be no surprise to a, a Bible reader that it's like that, that we need the church. Even when Jesus Christ went apart from the rest of His disciples, that was when Satan attacked Him, right? That's when he tried to tempt him and tried to show him all the kingdoms of the world. It should not be a surprise to us the importance of the community of believers we have because there's strength in numbers, right? There is strength in numbers in one sense. When I see you, grace is communicated to me from you to me. When I hear the preaching of the Word together, grace in an experiential sense in a temporal sense, is communicated to me that sustains me a little bit more as I press forward in my pilgrimage. You see, it's that heavenly manna that keeps us in this wilderness. It's that manna, that bread of life. Jesus, who is our bread of life, is communicated to us in a daily way as we meet together, as we read the Word, because it's not necessarily something that will come in this life to where we're going to be perfected. We need the Word of God. But at the same time, you also see that this does not mean that we just will fall in and never... Well, let me rephrase that. This completely disproves the idea of ineffectualism. And what that is, is that the Spirit of God can take hold of a man and not affect him at all. Notice, when the Spirit of God takes hold of you, something happens inside of you to where you have a contrary nature to your old nature that convicts you, that wars against the nature that you naturally have from Adam, that convicts you, that lusts against it, that is convicting you, propelling you to do something differently. When the Spirit of God takes hold of you, it changes you. It makes a radical change inside of your heart. It takes an individual that one time hated God and loved sin and makes that person mourn the sin that offends that God they once hated. You see, it changes you. You cannot, if you are born again by the Spirit of God, sit there and enjoy the sins that you once enjoyed to the same level that you enjoyed them. Now, you can still sin, right? There's no perfectionist view. If you go back to the Old Testament saints and you see David... If you see Solomon, if you see Samson and all of these other individuals from the Old Testament that we read about as being men of faith, they never got to a point to where they just made it. But yet after those times to when they had disappointed their God, as David would look up and beg for forgiveness, as 
The prophet looked at him and said, Thou art the man, and he fell down and wept. There's a change made in the heart of someone who has been touched by God's grace. There's a change in them. There's light now in them. The Son of God now exists in them, as it says in Colossians. You see, perfectionism is not attainable. We have a battle, a warfare inside of us, but equally this means that there is a change in you that has made you different, that you will always be different, and you will always be someone who has this warfare inside of you until you go to meet with God. But this warfare that we see, he says as he commands them to walk in the Spirit, he shows that it's not just this ease of life, as he says, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. When it says the flesh lusteth against, and the Spirit against the flesh, when it says that these are lusting, what it means is that their lusts is contrary to the other one. My natural inclination as a human being, born of Adam, is different than the inclination God gives me at the new birth. What I feel inside of me is different from the flesh standpoint, from that carnal natural nature, than it is with the Spirit of God. And it's kind of strange, that feeling of wanting to do two different things at the same time. You know, that, that, that daily feeling of having that sensation in our mind to say something mean, to think something mean, that contrary behavior that we have, and yet inside of us it convicts us. I've even experienced this during worship before as I'm sitting there listening to the preaching of the Word and I'm, I'm maybe angry and begin to just lash out at the individual in the pulpit in my head and I'm just giving them a verbal lashing that nobody can hear and then that feeling of contrition comes as I realize that as I am here supposed to be worshiping God, in my mind, something is taking me to a place it shouldn't be. Paul would equally paint the same picture in Romans chapter 7. As he here describes his own battle, you know, it's one thing to say that the Galatians had this frustration, that the Galatians had this inward battle inside of them to where the spirit and flesh constantly kept them from doing the things that they would like to do. But then we look at other Christians and think they have it so much easier than we do. I don't understand why they don't battle the same depression, the same frustration, the same anger, the same type of malice that's in my heart. And we may look at people and see this kind of whited exterior and think, they have it so much easier than I do. And then we look at somebody like Paul, who I would consider, in some sense, would be a super saint, right? Paul is that person that we would look at and say, if I could be like anybody, if I could just desire to be like an individual, it would be Paul his intellect, his pursuit of Christ, the fact that throughout his life, no matter what was in his way, he did not divert. He kept going. He finished his life and was able to say that he had finished his course, he had fought the good fight, he had kept the faith. If I could be like anybody, it would be Paul. And yet Paul in Romans chapter 7, as he describes what happened when the Spirit of God took him captive, something changed in him. And he says in verse 13 that when the law of God was truly made spiritual to them, to him, 
the sin that existed in his life, he says in those last two words, became exceeding sinful. And he says in verse 14, For what know, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. In other words, what I am actively doing in my life, I don't want to do. He then says, for what I would, in other words, what I want to do, that do I not. I'm not doing what I actually desire to do in my heart and mind, but what I hate, what I loathe in my inward parts, what my heart mourns over, I continually keep doing. He says, I equally am in this battle that what I am not wanting to do, for some reason I keep doing it. And what I don't want to do, well, what I do want to do, I'm not pursuing. This past week, somebody even lamented to me that they know that they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they love Christ, but yet there is this overwhelming fear of their own judgment simply because they know the sin that exists in their life. They know the frustration that they have daily. They understand that, that they can't please God in their flesh, and they have this feeling of inadequacy that constantly overwhelms them. And I wanted to look at them when they were saying this and say, good. Good? That just sounds contradictory. It's good that I'm mourning like this. It's good that I have this sense of frustration. It's good that I have this feeling of guilt. If you have that feeling, praise God for it. Why? Because as Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 8, to be spiritual-minded is life. Or as he says in verse 1, Therefore is there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Those who are feeling this conviction of soul, this battle of soul, this warfare, that person is the individual that is not condemned. You see, the hurt that you feel is proof that you're living. The pain that we feel in our heart and mind in the present existence of vanity proves the life that we have in Christ Jesus. The fact that I wrestle with this feeling of inadequacy before Christ proves that I'm in Christ. Now, if you are somebody here this morning that feels this frustration, that feels this type of inadequacy, that understands their depravity and knows that they deserve nothing before God, praise God, that proves you're in Christ. If you feel that sense of contrition, praise God, this battle lives in you. Well, we live in this kind of strange paradigm where he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh is these two that are contrary to each other. And he says, So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. It creates the problem that we're, we often don't follow what we know to be right. But then he says in verse 18, as we've already seen in Romans, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit of God, if this battle exists in you, then you are not under that condemnation that you once were. Though you feel the condemnation of soul, you're not under it. Conviction of sin is an evidence of the work of grace. And then he names this, and I want us to see this kind of two-pronged view here when he says, now the works of the flesh are manifest. 
which are these, and we read them at the beginning. But he also says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against there is such there is no law. He gives two different views here of actions that we can pursue. One, the works of the flesh, and the second one is the fruit of the Spirit. The way these are painted are interesting because the sinful acts that we may pursue, all of the glory for those go to our flesh. <laughs> the works, the actions, what we do that is dishonoring to God, guess who gets the glory for that? Humans. But when it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, notice it does not say, but the works that you do for God's service. It says the fruit of the Spirit. Even when we have done everything that we could in the service for God, who gets the glory for everything that we do? God. The fruit of the Spirit. It does not say your spiritual fruit, but it says the fruit that God has instilled in you through His Spirit, what He has done in you. God, even when we do good, God gets the glory. Always gets the glory. And any time that I fail... Josh gets the glory, right? I remember hearing people when I was growing up, and it was one of those cliche things, and I used to kind of laugh at it a little bit, because when you're growing up as a child, you know which people are going to say which things in prayers. You know, preacher's kids are horrible, right? Preacher's kids are bad. <laughs> at least um, my dad's kids were bad. And we used to hear certain people get called on to pray, and I knew exactly how they were going to start, what they were going to say in between, and how were they going to end. And I knew certain preachers, when they stood up, would say, now, if I say anything good, you give the praise to God, and if I say anything bad, you just throw that down at my feet. And I used to kind of laugh at that and think, okay, we get it. You say that every time, you know? I would think the same thing. You're going to say that every single time you speak. And even though it, when I was a child the repetitiveness in my head I'd laugh at. Me and Ben would elbow each other sitting there giggling, knowing who was going to say what. At the same time, now that I look back at that, that is a very precise theological truth. When I do good, even though I have to actively pursue God and actively pursue Christ, and I have to seek Him with all of my being, at the end of the day, when I've done everything that I've could do in His service, when I have been loving, when I've had joy, when I've had peace, when I've been long-suffering, when I've been gentle, when I've sought goodness, when I've had faith in Christ, when I've been meek, when I've been temperate, at the end of the day, everything that I've done in His service is simply a fruit bore from the work of the Spirit in my heart. Everything that I've done in God's service can be attributed to Him. That when I get to that final triumphant moment where I will see Him in my own body. I'm not going to praise for anything that I've done, but I'm going to take the crown that I have on my head and throw it at His feet and say, Thou art worthy. Because anything I have and anything I'm robed with, while I stand before Him, it's because of Him, it's for Him, it's by Him, and it is only there to glorify Him. But he paints these two views the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, what comes from our natural self and what comes from the Spirit of God. Now, these classifications of works of the flesh can be broken down into multiple different ways. 
You see the first one speak of sexual immorality, then it goes on into witchcraft and idolatry, which speak of problematic religious issues. Yes, idolatry and witchcraft, there are religious sins, as it were, and then the rest deal primarily with social sins or sins between each other. And those are the ones that are really convicting, because when we start at the beginning and see those first ones, we're like, I, I, I'm good. You know, I, I don't have those works of the flesh. You know, those, those first ones, that, I have no problem with that. I'm not an idolater. You know, I don't practice witchcraft. But then when it gets into the rest, I was actually reading this, and something had kind of gotten under my skin this past week, and I was angry. And there's nothing like reading the Word of God to kind of bring you down a notch, right? <laughs> Even for a preacher. And I, I, I was angry about something. I was mad. And in my head, as I've said before, you know, I, I'm not um, the nicest person. I come from Winslet's. We're a tough brood. And so I'm just sitting there getting angry inside of myself, that blood boiling frustration coming up in me. And I'm reading commentary. I'm like, I got to study for Sunday. You know, that sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? <laughs> I have to study for Sunday. And I begin to read, the, and I read the Scripture, and then I begin to read commentary and read how people are expanding and ex giving thoughts, and I finally hit where it says hatred. Variance. Variance can mean division. Emulation. Wrath. Goes from hatred, which is an internal feeling of anger towards another to wrath where you're actually getting enthralled to seek vengeance and then strife and seditions, heresies, envyings. And all of a sudden, the, the feeling, I think I got this, just kind of went down, right? Paul starts hard on the big ones and then begins to just go down the list and down the list and down the list and down the list. It almost makes you feel like you're not going to make it. But on the contrary, he gives a view of what the Spirit brings forth. You see, one is these works are manifests. Sometimes they're manifest outwardly. Sometimes they're manifest inwardly. Regardless, a person honest with themselves know that they exist in their being. Then in verse 22, when he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit brings forth in your life, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Something that is completely contrary to the other ones. Before we see how this works out in general, I do want you to notice that it does not say that the Spirit comes into a man because he is loving, because he is joyous, because he has peace, because he is long-suffering, because he is gentleness, uh, because he is goodness, or even, guess what, because he has faith. If an individual has faith, if an individual is showing forth love, it's because the Spirit is inside of that person and not the other way around. There is no way for any individual to have faith or love apart from the Spirit going into that individual. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, chapter 3 tells us that all men have not faith. And apart from the Spirit of God, no one has faith. But he gives this view of what the Spirit of God is. It is love. It is charity. It is that agape God's love, that self-sacrificing love for others. It is joy. That doesn't just mean happiness in general. 
I'm typically a happy person, but that being happy in general is not a fruit of the Spirit. I've seen people that are not as happy or bubbly as me. You know, my, uh, my wife, you know, I wake up and I'm singing, you know, and she's looking at me like, what's wrong with you? It's six o'clock in the morning, right? Why are you so happy? You know, I wake up with a song in my head. Well, you know, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. That's just my personality trait. I'm naturally bubbly like this. I'm naturally on, uh, when I wake up, I probably shouldn't drink a pot of coffee, right? But I do, you know, I, I bleed caffeine. But when it speaks of joy here, it's speaking of joy in the Lord. It's speaking of joy in all circumstances. It's speaking of having happiness in Christ that surpasses any happiness of personality. This isn't just a disposition you have as a personality trait. I've known people that have never ever shown a single sign of love in Jesus Christ that seem happy, at least externally. This isn't talking about that. This is talking about joy in our Lord. This is a fruit that is bore from the Spirit of God in you, is joy in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace, a calmness. Again, it's not just a person that can bear under uh, the trials of life naturally. I know some hard people that can bear a lot, right? I've known some folks in my own family that it didn't matter what happened, they were just hard grit people. They could grit their teeth and keep going. And that's a great personality trait to have. But when it's saying peace, it's not saying just grin and bear it and keep going. It's saying that these people have what? Again, peace attached to what? attached to the Lord. They have peace of life stemming from the Son of God Himself. We should never detach the fruit of the Spirit from both its source, where it comes from, and equally under whom we understand these principles to be given. Everything that is here is all under the umbrella of Jesus Christ. Love in God, for God, and from God as it goes to other people. Joy in the Lord, peace in, under any circumstance found in Christ. Long-suffering. Notice it doesn't just say that you are here being patient. It does not say that. It's saying long-suffering. You know, I can see somebody that will wait that's not long-suffering. My children may wait towards certain hours of the day. They know at 6 o'clock, trust me, they wake, we moved them into the, the same room this past week may have been last week, I don't know. Time joins together when you have two children. And we moved them into the same room and bless their hearts. Used to, on the weekends, when one would wake up, I might be able to get 15 or 30 minutes without the other one awake. But now when they're both in the same room, it's, hey, hey, let, who's going to go ask mommy and daddy if it's time to eat? Yet? And so they're coming into the bedroom and they wait patiently for six when they wake up to eat. They wait, yes, yeah, six o'clock every day. They wait patiently for 9 o'clock when I give them a snack. And they wait patiently for 11 o'clock every time that they eat. But do you think they're very long-suffering as they wait? <laughs> Not as much as Daddy would hope. <laughs> Is it time yet? You know, we can wait patiently at the doctor's office, but that doesn't mean we're long-suffering during the process. Long-suffering has a greater or more weighty connotation attached to it. You see, it's not just that you're patient for it, but you are long-suffering. You are willing to endure under the trial, and that is only found as it is in Christ Jesus through the Spirit of God. It's one of God's traits. Gentleness. 
goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All of these are traits that are embodied in Christ, attributes of God, yet given to us at the new birth. They come directly from the Spirit of God, and he says this is what we have in Christ. But he paints this picture of this warfare. On one hand, inside of us, we feel this inclination to love, yet at the same exact time simultaneously, this contradiction, this paradox that we have as Christians, we have the same inclination to hate. It's odd, isn't it? You see, sometimes we think of regeneration as being the exact opposite of being totally depraved. I'm born again. But in actuality, the, the exact opposite of being depraved or in sins is going to be when we go to be with Christ and He has completely redeemed us, both body, soul, and spirit, from all iniquity to where we will have nothing that hinders us, whether it be sickness or sin. We will be before Him in a glorified body. But regeneration is different. You see, yes, I have been made partaker of the divine nature, as Peter tells us, but at the same time, there is something that is constantly holding me back from serving Him as I should, just as it was Paul. The simultaneous ability to both love and hate. The simultaneous ability to be meek and temperate, yet at the same time holding wrath and strife and a murderer's heart. And this is the contradictory paradox we live in. The Christian experience. This is why it's so easy on one day to wake up singing and then the next day wake up begging God to just, Lord, come quickly. But he says in verse 24, as he views this battle that exists inside of us, this warfare that exists, this battle between the Spirit of God inside of us and the flesh that exists still. He says, "...and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts." He looks and says that those that are Christ, that means you, people that have been chosen by God that are in Christ, represented by Christ on the cross, those who have been born again and are now vitally connected to Christ. Not only have you been represented by Christ on the cross, but you are equally in Christ as a new creature being quickened by divine Christ. Those that are Christ's, it says, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. What does that phrase mean, have crucified the flesh? Now, it does not mean as we've already seen, it does not mean that you have all your T's crossed and all of your I's dotted and you have crucified every single thing that has taken you back in your life. It doesn't mean that you have it all figured out. It doesn't mean that you are a tier above the rest. But what it means is that inside of you, the Spirit of God is mortifying that carnal nature. It mourns it. It hates it that it sees the vanity that exists. It loathes what it knows it is. It puts to death those feelings with the affections and lusts. Why is it that you can go from enjoying something to at the same time simultaneously hating it? 
Now, I one time heard somebody say that a child of God can't sin and enjoy it. So they said it would be like somebody drinking gasoline. I, whereas I get the principle that it's bad for us and sooner or later it may really affect us in such a negative way. At the same time, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11 that you can enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. It can be something we can enjoy, but only for a period. Because the Spirit of God does what? It mortifies that inclination. It mortifies that sin. It hates it. It crucifies it with the affections and lusts. This is why Paul would then say, if we live in the Spirit, if we are living a life in the Spirit of God, if we are alive in Christ, and notice it does not say, if we walk in the Spirit, we will live in the Spirit. I'm thankful it doesn't say that. Because if it said that, I would doubt every single day if I was actually living in the Spirit of God, right? If I had to question my place in Jesus Christ according to how I was walking that day, I would never have assurance of my salvation. If I had to look at myself and think, okay, am I walking today to where I know that I'm in Christ, I would never be able to fully say, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. Because I'm never walking exactly like I should. And even when my walk may be right, my heart is not necessarily right because of this battle that continually exists throughout my life. It does not say, if you walk, you will live. But it says, you who do live in the Spirit, you who have been quickened by God, you who are believers in Jesus Christ because of the work that God has done on your soul, you who have crucified the flesh and mourn your current existence, you who are alive in Christ, he says, let us also walk in the Spirit. The command here is, if we do live in it, let us walk in it. Continue in it. Think about it this way. Enjoy it. Pursue it. Actively seek it. You know, I'm one of those people, if I have something, I know this sounds pragmatic almost, or it could even sound hedonistic. That word hedonistic means you only seek and joy. A hedonist wants all of life to just be happy and joyous. That's what their, their pursuit of life is just to be happy. And I'm not trying to sound like somebody that's saying my life is just to pursue happiness. But my thing is, if I have anything, I'm going to enjoy it to its fullest. You know, I, I'm in a marriage. I want to enjoy it to its fullest. I want to be the, be the best husband I can be, enjoy Rebecca and the kids, my, my family as much as I can. You know, as a minister, I want to enjoy the ministry as much as I can because I'm, I'm in it. Live in it. Walk in it. If I'm living, I want it to be the best it can be. Church equally, church life. As church members and as a church body, you are part of an entity. You are part of an organization, in a sense, a congregation of believers. You are in it. So what do you want to do? You want it to be the best it can be, right? Be the very best it can be. One of my favorite lines in a secular movie... It's one of the most, uh, <laughs> sometimes I quote things I shouldn't quote, and I tell y'all that I've seen things that I shouldn't have seen. But there was a movie um, years ago, and it was called Shawshank Redemption. Uh, some of y'all may have saw that. It's got some bad parts, so I don't encourage anybody to watch it. But there was one line in it that I really enjoyed. It was at the, closer to the end of the movie, and the main characters were sitting there, and one was lamenting that they were still in prison. The other one was frustrated because he knew he shouldn't be there. And he said, 
you know, the truth is it's out there and we're in here. You either get busy living or get busy dying. And that's, you can say, well, how, what does that have to do with the context of this? We're either doing two things. We're either giving in to the flesh or we're pursuing Christ. And we're not pursuing Christ simply because we want to have our best life now, but we're pursuing Him because this is the life that we have. You are in Christ Jesus. You are God's. You have freedom that exists as a child of God. You have freedom that God has given you from the law, from the curse of the law, from death, from fear of death. And he says, if you are alive in Christ and have this freedom, he looks at you and commands you as somebody who has this life to pursue it in its fullness and live in it. God's given us a beautiful thing in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll close here. Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul begins that letter to the church at Ephesus, pastored by Timothy. A very well-known portion of Scripture in our churches where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We typically begin in verse 4, and as we read, according as He has chosen us, that is one of, as it were, our mantras, our fight songs, one of the verses that I have heard, and we forget the verse prior to that that we just read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Everything that we have as a spiritual principle of life stems directly from the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And the bigger things that we see here being manifest to us, that being chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, predestinated unto the adoption of children. Uh, when he goes on to say, having redemption through His blood in verse 7, and he continues to speak in verse 10 of the dispensation of the fullness of times He may gather together in one all things in Christ we see the bigger principle of what God has done for us in these spiritual blessings, but we forget the smaller principles in pursuing this life that we have in walking in Christ. Do you realize that prayer is a blessing that God purchased for you on the cross of Christ? Prayer itself is something you would not have access to apart from Jesus Christ. The freedom to pray to God would be non-existent apart from God dying on a cross. The ability to, at a funeral, lay your loved ones in the grave and not cry, but say, I know my Savior lives and I will see my loved ones again. That is a blessing that we get from Christ's cross. The blessing we have when we're diagnosed with a disease or something that is incurable, but we can look and say, God has done all things well, that is a blessing we have in Christ. If you live in the Spirit, if Christ lives in you and you are Christ's, He says, walk in that. The blessings that we have from the Spirit in us, joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness, temperance, He says, against such there is no law. In two ways he means this. One, there's no law against it. Nothing condemns it. But when he says against such there is no law, what he's saying is in 
the fruit that God bears in our life, there is no bondage. There is no constraint. There is no shackles. There is no slavery. What God does in us brings freedom. Therefore, if we have that freedom, if we live in the Spirit, if inside of us our heart mortifies the affections and lusts of the flesh, if we have this freedom, that warfare inside of us, he says, therefore, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us pursue what God has done in us. Bow with me. Gracious Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for your love and kindness. Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us a heart that desires your word. That, Lord, this warfare we have one against the other would... Lord, though it makes us mourn, it would equally make us desire you more and have a hope to know that if we have this warfare inside of us, that we are not in condemnation, but, Lord, that we have been justified freely by your grace. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would actively pursue you, that nothing in your service would be boring or mundane, that, Lord, we would never give way as often as we could to the works of the flesh, but that we would actively desire and seek you in all things that we do, that, Lord, when the word is read, we would listen attentively, that when it is preached, Lord, that we would rejoice in what you have done for us, and, Lord, when the songs are sang, it would be to your glory. Let us, Lord, as a community of believers, seek the betterment of each other. And, Lord, that we would walk together, one with another, in this warfare and battle. Gracious God, we ask these things in his name and for his sake and for his glory. And amen.